This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Millions of Americans use wheelchairs. The last census estimate was over 3 million, and that number is expected to grow annually. Researchers found that more than half of wheelchairs break down in typical six-month period. And many Connecticut residents who use wheelchairs say those repairs can take months. Local disability advocates are trying to change the system and hoping to enforce timely repairs. A legislative task force was formed this past session through Connecticut's Human Services Committee, and this group is set to study minimum standards for timely repair. And here to share their hopes for this task force is Jonathan Sigworth. He's a consumer spokesperson who is on the task force, and he's also the co-founder, co-CEO, and president of the nonprofit More Than Walking. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's a pleasure being here. And we also have Farah Garland. They are a coordinator for CT Wheelchair Reform Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us, Farah, this morning. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's lovely to be here. And for our listeners, do you use a wheelchair? If you do and you have any issues, weigh in on this hour and let us know. Give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Jonathan, I want to start with you. So we know about this task force, but this conversation did not start there. Can you take us back a bit to how this started with the legislature? Yeah, sure. So... Um, back in February, uh, Fair and I are, are both members of the State Independent Living Council, which oversees um, all the different centers for independent living in Connecticut. So these are um, nonprofits that help people with, people with disabilities navigate um, community resources and provide peer mentoring and all sorts of services. And uh, we heard um, through this council um, that there was a bill being proposed that was a Connecticut version of a recent bill passed in Colorado called Right to Repair. Um, and we heard about this issue. And although Right to Repair, um, you know, implies that consumers have the right to repair their own equipment, um, it's associated with, you know, other right to repair issues around technology, computers, electronics, where, you know, the manufacturers of a product have to disclose the manuals, the parts, um, provide software and diagnostic equipment so that users can repair their own devices um, with power wheelchairs um, as well. Um, this was not the solution that many consumers here in Connecticut thought would help solve many of the issues we are facing, especially when we're facing like months and in some cases years of delay um, to get basic equipment repaired. Um, and so we reached out to uh, the, the representatives who were sponsoring this bill. Um, this was Mike D'Amico and Frank Smith, um, who really, you know, welcomed in uh, the voices of the disabled community here in Connecticut. And we worked with them to um, suggest uh, to basically provide updates to the bill, um, which would have focused more on timely repairs and you know minimum three-day evaluation of a repair need um, among other things um, and that bill unfortunately uh, did not pass and did not succeed but what resulted um, was an informal working group where we were sitting side by side with industry representatives so representatives from you know two national 
um, wheelchair repair companies, as well as a spokesperson from the, the complex rehab technology industry, um, among others. And we started to hash out um, some of the possible solutions, some of the possible areas of agreement um, that you know we're we're looking at. Um, unfortunately, we did not get to you know the harder questions uh, that the industry does not like. Um, but uh, we're moving forward with that, and we did succeed in passing another bill uh, as a result of you know out of that working group. Um, Senator Matt Lesser and Representative Jillian Gilchrist were really uh, influential in that six eight five five. Uh, which form, which uh, formalized a task force moving forward, which I'm a member of and, and consumer spokesperson on, that will provide further legislation uh, that will have more teeth, more impact uh, in February of next year. So we have a little bit of time to still negotiate with the industry, um, but uh, we have some assurances that that will happen. And of course, we will be digging deeper into this subject as we move this conversation along. And just a reminder for our listeners that if you use a wheelchair, please give us a call at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter. We now have Maureen, who is joining us from Weathersfield. Maureen, you're on air. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say um, regarding the wheelchair repairs that um, I've been waiting for foot plates for over two years and they um, they don't allow me to rest my feet properly on the foot plate and so that causes me a lot of pain. I have pressure, sore, pressure sores and I worry about long-term damage and I know for a fact that the tech is just um, overworked and he... Um, actually told me that I'm out of sight, out of mind, so I have to continually call. Um, and they were finally scheduled to come two weeks ago, and they just didn't show up. And they, um, and that was a result of just unreturned phone calls. So it's it's a big problem, and it's a problem of not having enough workers. Thank you so much, Maureen, for taking the time and sharing your story with us. And we know that it's sadly a common theme here. So Jonathan, I would love to um, ask you to... Uh, respond to Maureen's experience. Is it representative of the issue? And why is that different from right to repair? Um, her experience is, is definitely representative of the issue. Um, so to speak to your question, right to repair, again, it, it doesn't solve the problem of timeliness. It basically says that you're allowed to get your um, largely power wheelchair because they're the ones that deal with software. Um, you can get that repaired by a third-party technician without voiding your warranty, right? Um, but it doesn't mean that the manufacturer or your insurance is going to pay for it. Uh, usually those things have to get paid out of pocket. So it doesn't really solve any problems um, if you're on limited income or anything like that. Um, and in terms of the, you know, the, the lack of staffing, I mean, this is... Uh, what is familiar when you're looking at private equity owned companies um, that plan on selling, you know, their, their companies in, in several years is they maximize uh, business value by reducing costs and running skeleton crews. And that is what we've seen. There's been a deprioritization of in-home repairs. Um, there's been 
you know, significant delays. And, you know, the industry will say, well, it's because we're coming out of COVID, you know, there's um, shipping uh, supply chain issues. But mo many of the, the issues that we're seeing, you know, it's, it's overworked office staff. It's people getting lost in the shuffle. It's phone calls not being answered. It's equipment arriving to the shop and not being seen. And those, you know, pivotal phone calls that say, hey, your equipment is here, come pick it up, or um, let's schedule a time to come out. It's, it's just a lot of missed connections that are not the result of supply chain issues. This is indicative of um, unsupported staff, uh, untrained staff in many cases. I mean, in, you know, personally, I had a, uh, a wheel uh, fixed last year. And um, instead of, you know, replacing the, the small $5 uh, ball bearing inside my wheel, they wanted to replace the entire wheel, which costs $2,000. Um, other friends of mine who just had flat tires, uh, instead of replacing the flat tire, um, they wanted to, again, replace the same $2,000 wheel set. So there's, there's a huge uh, mix-up of financial incentives for the types of repairs that are being prioritized, as well as just a significant lack of training where wheel check te technicians are, don't even, are not being trained to safely or properly change uh, flat tires. I mean, if that's not the bare minimum for uh, wheelchair technician training, I don't know what is. Well, I think just your experience, which I'm assuming is many for many other people, are unfortunately common, and we'll definitely be touching more on the private equity issue later on this show. But I want to um, ask Jonathan also to clarify that this task force is looking into timely repairs. We've been talking about timely repairs just in the last couple of minutes. Um, for and it's for complex rehabilitation uh, technology. Can you talk about what does that exactly mean? You know, what are what are the equipments that we're referring to when we're talking about sort of a, this complex rehabilitation technology? Yeah, so CRT or complex rehab uh, rehabilitation technology. Uh, these are like custom um, mobility devices. So uh, you can go into like a you know large pharmacy like a, uh, a large pharmacy store and, and see scooters and wheelchairs those are not complex rehab technology um complex rehab technology are like lightweight wheelchairs titanium wheelchairs that are fitted to the individual um, power chairs that have custom posture um support and and seating and uh tilt back features and um, things designed for pressure relief so so these are devices that you need to have, you know, script for, you need to have usually a, a physical therapist and an assistive technology professional professional um, evaluate you and prescribe, you know, the, the specifications of the device. So that's another really big part of this issue is, you know, we're not dealing with an industry where if I am unsatisfied with the level of service, I can go to another business down the street or look on Google reviews and see the terrible reviews and go somewhere else. My insurance locks me in to the only two options in Connecticut. And those two options are new motion and national seating and mobility. I have no other options. Those are the only two games in town. And depending on where I buy my wheelchair, I can only get that wheelchair serviced at the same business. So I can't even, it's, it's, I think it may be possible, but it's difficult to switch between. Um, so we're really kind of locked in and because we're paying through our insurance plans, 
um, as opposed to, you know, out of pocket most of the time, uh, you know, we're not voting with our dollars here. We are essentially part of the product being bought and sold. And we are at the mercy of insurance company policies. And we are at the mercy of um, these wheelchair supplier and repair companies that are providing CRT. And at the moment, they're not prioritizing customer convenience. They're not prioritizing customer um, health. Uh, they're prioritizing their bottom line. And as they will say, they're trying to survive in a very competitive market. And that's true. But in order to protect the consumers, um, we need further legislation, as well as to help sustain the industry long term. Well, and I want to bring in Farah for the conversation. But before I do that, I do want to add a note here that we did contact both New Motion and National Seating and Mobility asking about the importance of timely repairs and any estimates as to average wait times that they could give us. Um, and New Motion responded with this statement. New Motion agrees that the current ecosystem for service and repair is inadequate and must be improved. Service wait times are impacted by myriad causes, such as the need for a prescription and or prior authorization, challenging dynamics with supply chain and labor shortages, to name just a few. We are actively working with consumer advocates, industry leaders, and legislators to create a system that provides safe, affordable, and timely service and repair for those who do utilize complex rehab technology. New Motion is committed to doing this part to improve and help lead the way with others who are aligned to fix the system for consumers. And Farah, we know you're involved with the Connecticut Wheelchair Reform Coalition. What are your hopes for this task force? Oh, that's a that's a great question. My my hopes for this task force are very similar to what my hopes for the informal working group were, which is that <clears throat> that we can get some legislation passed that will put some standards in place with um, both incentives, but also, um, um, you know, but also some things to hold uh, the industry accountable to make sure that, that folks are actually called back in a timely manner, that chairs are, you know, evaluated in a timely manner, and then that they're actually fixed in a timely manner. I mean, I don't think that that's unreasonable. When we were looking, so I am not on the uh, new legislative task force that is moving forward, but I was part of the uh, work group, and I am part of the uh, coalition. And when we were working on the uh, first bill, which was uh, the one that did not end up getting support, um, we we were working with the industry to try to address this issue. And part of what we attempted to do with them was not just address our struggles, which was, you know, th these things are not being fixed. And that's a problem for us. Like, you know, our chairs are broken and not being repaired. But we also attempted to address the concerns of the industry, which were things like, you know, they're not getting um, 
they're not getting reimbursals for everything that they should get reimbursals for or not enough, such as, you know, um, the, the rates are too low. They're not being, you know, reimbursed for travel times, things like that. We were pushing to have um, um, uh, uh, the, I'm so sorry, my brain fog okay. is a bit bad today. Uh, we were prior, pushing- Prior authorization. Prior, thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate <laughs> you. Um, it's, it makes the dream work, as they say. Uh, we were pushing to have prior authorizations uh, uh, removed, at least in you know as many instances as possible, as well as like additional scripts for repairs. For you know, why would we need that if we've already been prescribed a chair? I mean, we were pushing to have all of these issues that the industry was saying were the things that were holding them back. We were pushing to have those addressed, and. Even so, even with that, the industry still refused to work with us and still decided, you know, still at the end of the day changed their mind and said, actually, we don't think we can stand behind this because you're, you know, we're only attempting to do this for one payer to start with and then move forward to future payers instead of doing every single insurance payer at once. Sorry, we're just not going to play ball. Right. And what with what you're saying just now, Farah, Jonathan, I believe there was also an initial plan to focus on Medicaid as well during the last legislative session that got scrapped. Can you tell us a little bit about that from your perspective? Yeah. Uh, so um, it was it was interesting. Our our hope um, when we started the informal working group was let's focus let's focus on the things we do agree on. Let's get those out of the way so we can get down to the hard work of what we disagree on. Um, we spent f- four or five or six I don't know how many weeks talking about these things, and we eventually said, okay, well by the end of this session, we there's a chance we can make changes to Medicaid. So these are people who are you know, they can't pay out of pocket. These are most likely the people who have the highest level of disability um, that requires them to stay on, on Medicaid so that they have 24-7 caregiving support, which you can't get um, on private insurance or other insurance plans. So we're talking about the neediest people. We're talking about people with highest level of disability, people who are n- most vulnerable, um, whose reimbursements are the lowest, you know? So they're the ones who, who need timely repairs the most. And even then, the industry response was, well, we want to wait. We want to wait until February 2024 to pass legislation. Legislation that we pass in that next session won't be available, I think, till this summer. So we're, we're literally talking about a year. And if there are any other hiccups, you could add another year onto that. So they were essentially saying, instead of making changes to the most vulnerable people in Connecticut, Let's wait two years. And the reason for this is because it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair. And it was just jaw dropping. Um, you know, that argument that it wouldn't be fair to help the most vulnerable because those who have other options, who have better support, might be upset at us. The real reason is because it would be more work for them to change their system for some than to do it for everyone at the same time. 
and in the meantime, the status quo is working better for them than those measly reimbursement changes that would come with just Medicaid reform. So it was purely financial reasoning on their part, and it's it's really it was really disappointing. Absolutely, and it is worth noting that um, on the uh, work group that was putting this together and making these suggestions and saying we should we should start here and then move forward to other payers in the future. Um, a, a, at least a few of us, I mean, you know, Jonathan, who was our, our chair um, included, we had people with private insurance on our group. And even they were saying, no, start with the most vulnerable. That's fine. And the industry was still saying, no, you don't understand disabled folk with other insurances they'll they'll be jealous it's not fair and at some point i would love to talk about uh folks talking over and speaking for disabled disabled folk because that is very much what happened here and it is it's not all right and we've got about a minute here, but I still want to touch. We, I mean, I want to dig into all of that, really. But I also want to ask Farah. You know, we know here in Hartford, we're in the insurance capital of the world. Is the hope that, especially since we're talking about legislation and follow-throughs and, and priorities for next year, are your hopes that Connecticut would be taking a national lead on this issue? Oh, absolutely. I mean. There's absolutely no excuse not to. I mean, as you said, we're the insurance capital. I mean, we should be we should be setting an example here. We also consider ourselves like something of at least a we pretend to be a progressive state and we should we should put our money where our mouth is. We should be taking steps forward as far as, you know, you know, civil rights, really, like disabled folk deserve to be treated like whole humans. We should be able to have freedom and independence and being able to have our chairs, our mobility repaired in a timely manner is baseline. And, you know, Hartford being able to step up in this way and setting an example for the entire country is just like, I think that it's an absolute no-brainer. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. And Jonathan, any quick final thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, many of the legislators we're working with, um, and, you know, we're also working with lawyers from Disability Rights Connecticut who have seen insurance reform in the past, and they have, they countered, you know, the, the industry's point where, you know, if you make changes to Medicaid, which is, which was the only insurance plan that we could make changes to that's state run, it doesn't involve private insurance, it doesn't involve national Medicare plans. When you make changes to those state Medicaid policies, uh, and especially in Connecticut, because it's the insurance capital, um, the other insurance companies have followed suit. So that's just an, another point um, that when we do finally make changes, we are really looking forward to making national change. 
You've been listening to Jonathan Sigworth and Farah Garland with the Connecticut Wheelchair Reform Coalition, and they'll be staying with us. Coming up, one researcher at the University of Pittsburgh has been studying the prevalence of wheelchair breakdowns. She joins the conversation, and you can do. Give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Connecticut's legislature just formed a task force to investigate how timely wheelchair repairs might be enforced. And here to discuss how commonly these repairs are needed is Dr. Lynn Warabe. She's a research assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh's Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Thank you so much, Dr. Warabe, for being with us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. And you co-authored a study that we've been referencing this hour, which found more than half of wheelchairs that needs repairs every six months. Uh, what would you add to that? So I think that um, it's kind of an introduction to this research. So it's a kind of an ongoing cross-sectional study we've been doing since 2009 um, in conjunction with 15 other SCI model systems um, in the country. And I think one of the concerning things is we've seen that rate increase over time. Um, so when we first reported, it was around 45%, and now it's over 60%. Um, a recent study into veterans has shown even higher rates. Um, and the, I think the clarifier on that is it's a really short period of time, so six months. So I think if you kind of put an analogy to cars, if 60% of cars were kind of breaking down in a six-month period, there would sort of be this big outcry of this is a big problem. And I think that that's some of what this new focus on legislature and policy is trying to do is kind of raise this to the attention that this is a problem and needs to be addressed. And it's pretty incredible that this is now a conversation being had at that level. And with what Jonathan has mentioned earlier with his experience, trying to get a ball bearing replaced and also our caller Maureen who called in needing to replace plates, but not getting a timely uh, you know, repair done as is the conversation we're having now. So we know these delays can have serious health consequences. Can you tell us about that? 
Sure. So one of our um, studies looked at repairs that are associated with consequences. So people had a repair and secondary to that, they were stranded or missed medical appointment or missed work. And we see that among those individuals, folks are about twice as likely to be hospitalized, twice as likely to experience um, skin disease and also to report a pressure ulcer. So it's not just kind of these economic and societal impacts of repairs um, and not being able to leave the house or leave bed, but we see these medical um, consequences associated with repairs as well. And this is a little different from your your research, but can you tell us about the average length of repair time? Obviously not a one-size-fits-all scenario, but is there sort of a, a study or an idea of how long the average length of repair time is? Um, So in a recent study, we looked at veterans and kind of the amount of time it took for repairs. It was about a month on average, Um, but we also see that people experienced repairs lasting more than six months. Um, We have some unpublished data that we're looking to write up soon, hopefully, Um, but we see as an example, um, there's a really protracted timeline. So somebody might need a repair, two months later, the part is ordered two and a half months, the loaner chair is delivered, there's insurance approval, then the part is delivered and the repair is finally completed. For this person in particular, that took about 180 days, which is a long time. Um, And I think as kind of some of the callers referenced that that may be short compared to what some folks are experiencing. And if you think about the impact of that on getting to work, doing daily activities, um, it's pretty significant. And I want to bring back Jonathan Sigworth and Farah Garland with the Connecticut Wheelchair Reform Coalition. Farah, with what the doctor just said, does this research track with what you're hearing from people here in Connecticut? Um, absolutely. In fact, <clears throat> I would say that it sounds on the short side of what I've heard from a lot of folks. Um, I've just delays in getting getting repairs just it's 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 so long it's so long and it's it's dangerous it's she she hit the nail on the head when she said it's not just people you know stuck in bed but additionally just it's it's lack of quality of life it's lack of ability to engage with with the world around with engage with society equally and i mean we've heard everything from you know folks having like a few weeks of delay to we had a few stories we've we've requested stories from uh the public in connecticut we've had uh a few years to get parts like that's there's there's absolutely no excuse for that none and, whatsoever and jonathan what about you does the research track with what you're hearing too here in connecticut yeah definitely and it was interesting you know that the, the first study she mentioned was you know, with veterans and, and with, with veterans, you actually um, have a little, I, what I um, think is a little more robust of a system. It's, it's separate from, you know, what the rest of us experience with um, private insurance or, or state Medicaid or uh, Medicare plans. Um, And they, you know, I have a colleague um, who's a veteran who, who works with veteran affairs for his repairs and they kind of operate on the older, older type of system where you have um, smaller companies that contract with veteran um, veterans affairs, and you know they they go around and and they do the wheelchair repairs. They have their own 
you know, manufacturer contracts. Um, and, you know, you have the technician's, uh, you know, cell phone number saved in your, in your phone. And that's how it used to be in Connecticut. It wasn't always like this. You know, we had um, Hudson, uh, Hudson Home Health and, and some others. Um, and just in the last, you know, 10 years or so, those companies have been bought up um, by National City Mobility and, and New Motion. And you no longer have those those personal connections that you can reach out to uh, to make sure that your voice is heard. You know, you, you get an answering machine or you get unanswered emails. One of the really interesting um, stories that we heard was actually with one of our fellow advocates um, who is nonverbal, right? So she depends, she has muscular dystrophy. Um, she's depended on her caregiver. Um, sorry, she has uh, cerebral palsy. Um, relied on her caregiver to communicate. And, you know, it took uh, months and months of, of reaching out, not getting uh, feedback. Um, and her parts had been sent to Texas. Uh, and, you know, when a technician finally came out, uh, they didn't come out on the assigned day and instead came, you know, several days later, or a week later, um, unannounced. So just a complete breakdown of, of the system. And this again speaks to, you know, Maureen uh, who called in her point is that, you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't a matter of, of shipping or uh, supply chain issues. This is a staffing issue. And unfortunately, you know, as we sit down for our task force, we cannot legislate that they hire more staff. You know, that's just not something that we can do. Um, and so we're going to get a lot of resistance and a lot of excuses, um, a lot of positioning saying that people are going to have to come into the shop to get faster repairs. How do you, how does a consumer who has a broken wheelchair that does not function, who's on Medicaid, whose insurance perhaps doesn't want to uh, pay for transportation to go all the way across the state to the one new motion repair office in the state in Rocky Hill. How is that person supposed to take their entire day to go get their wheelchair repaired when they have a significant breakdown? It's not a realistic option for people in urgent need, um, which is why, you know, we really need to work together, the whole community, because, you know, anyone can become a wheelchair user. I'm sorry to say, you know, I was injured at 19. I fell off a cliff in India riding a bicycle, that can happen in East Rock. That can happen anywhere. It can happen from a car accident. We are all potentially in this boat of needing to rely on, you know, complex rehab technology, um, which is why this, this really is a universal issue that we need to look at as such. And Dr. Warabe, I want to bring you back for a quick moment. We only have about a minute here, but any final thoughts you may have by hearing what Jonathan and Farah have to say? Yeah, I think that it, it all resonates with what we're seeing in the research. I'm also a practicing clinician, so I see it from that side as well. Um, but I think some of the bigger challenges is the repair process is just not incentivized. Um, it's often a money loser for the, the vendor. And I think that sort of changing how that is structured financially could make a difference. Um, but I think one of the other big challenges with repairs is preventative maintenance isn't supported. So inherently, you are waiting until something is broken um, to be able to address it. And I think that that just invites a slew of adverse consequences that we could potentially 
be facing and eliminating um, if we were to focus on also introducing some preventative maintenance. You've been listening to Dr. Lynn Warabay at the University of Pittsburgh. Thank you so much, Dr. Warabay, for your time this morning. Thank you. And Jonathan and Farah will be staying with us. We'll talk more about the impact of private equity in the healthcare industry. And you can also share your experiences with wheelchair repairs by calling us at 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with us to continue this discussion around the importance of timely wheelchair repairs is Jonathan Sigworth, who's part of the recently formed Wheelchair Task Force in the state, also the co-founder, co-CEO, and president of the nonprofit More Than Walking. We also have Farrah Garland. They are a coordinator for the Connecticut Wheelchair Reform Coalition. And just a reminder for our listeners, too, that you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Jonathan, I want to start with you to sort of go back to the conversation about working with the legislature and your experience of this uphill political battle, it seems, to make change on this front. What has your experience been like? Yeah, it it was really interesting. Um, I've been involved in disability advocacy literally since um, when I was injured at 19 back in 2006. Um, But it was just this past year um, that I got involved in local legislative efforts or, you know, local advocacy issues. I was injured in India and and a lot of my work has been, you know, overseas with nonprofits and and focused on peer mentoring. Um, So when I got involved, you know, in advocating for, for the bill, uh, this past February, I was, I was kind of shocked, right? Because I would, I would submit my testimony, I would, I would share my experience, and then to listen in, um, on you know seeing representatives and, and senators debate in, in, uh, in council meetings um, as the as the bill is going through and being reviewed, and to see it actively delayed or actively ignored or to see testimony purposefully um, twisted to uh, to delay the passage of the bill or um, to come up with excuses for not supporting it was was really kind of shocking right because I mean this is this is not uh, this should not be a, a liberal issue a conservative issue um, the disabled community is all of us you know, it's Democrats, it's Republicans, it's, it's LGBTQ plus community, it's the, it's the, um, all aspects of society are within our disabled community. And 
this does not need to be a partisan issue. And, and so when we saw it, you know, being actively resisted, um, it was, it was really shocking and disheartening that there wasn't that unanimous support that we saw, um, that we were looking for. Um, so, and, so that was interesting. And Farah, you have also been a part of this experience, and it's very personal for, for everyone really here. How would you describe your work with the legislature? What was your experience like? Um, <clears throat> I would say that I was perhaps less surprised than uh, uh, Jonathan watching uh, watching our our stories and rights be sidelined. Um, I've been doing disability rights, disability justice work for about 10 years, um, but I've been working in local politics for um, a, a little bit longer than, than Jonathan, I guess. Um, and I've been doing, uh, like I said, disability justice work and queer liberation work and whatnot for, for a while and have seen the way that politics aside, you know, right versus left aside, that when it comes to addressing the rights of a marginalized group, it gets sticky really fast. And it was really disheartening watching the original bill get, as you said, like, you know, twisted and sidelined and whatnot, but I, I wasn't super surprised by it. Um, but I was very grateful when we moved forward with our, our second second round of, of um, you know, writing the, the legislation, uh, the, the second bill. Um, I was grateful for the, the support of, you know, Matt Lesser and, and uh, Jillian uh, Gilchrist and what have you. Um, but disability rights is one of those, one of those areas that um, it's just, it's hard to get people on board because they don't necessarily see the issue unless they're living the issue with you. Um, and so it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a diff, it's a difficult, it's a difficult topic. Uh, Judy Human, who is the mother, considered like the mother of the ADA, she sat up the 504 sit-in and helped get the, uh, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act passed. Uh, she once commented that uh, disability rights, which this is a disability rights issue, uh, she said that it was the first civil rights issue to be addressed with, uh, and I quote, yeah, but the cost yeah, we could give you rights, but what is it going to cost? Um, and we're seeing that here, that we're looking at, like, we need to do better by disabled folk. And the response is, ooh, that sounds expensive. And I've been seeing this for years. It's not surprising. It's eternally disheartening. Disabled folk do better, deserve better. Um, Jonathan is right. Anybody can become disabled at any time. That is true. Uh, we're seeing more like aging in place, um, you know, stuff both legislatively and just, you know, across the board. Uh, you see it with like, um, uh, you know, 
places being built, things being designed for aging in place. And that's excellent. People are becoming more aware that like disability comes for us all if you're lucky. But it shouldn't have to for people to care about our civil rights, for us people to care about us being able to exist as whole and equal people in society. And when our wheelchairs don't work, we cannot exist equally in society. We are, our mobility is taken away from us. Um, there is a, uh, a wonderful movement going around that is pushing back against the uh, terrible uh, phrasing about people who use chairs, which is um, referring to wheelchair users as being wheelchair bound or confined to their wheelchair, which both of which are inappropriate ways to refer to someone in a wheelchair. They're, you know, we're wheelchair users. Um, and the pushback is that wheelchairs are freedom. And that's exactly right. Our chairs are our freedom. They are our mobility. They are our independence. When they are not working, our freedom and our independence, which is something that our nation likes to talk a lot about, that's taken from us. And that's something that people across the board, across the parties, across everything should care about, regardless of cost, regardless of whether it may someday affect you or not, regardless of whether you have a disabled friend, whatever, disability rights, our civil rights, their human rights. And, and that should matter. Well, thank you so much, Farah, for sharing your experiences with us and Jonathan as well. You know, both of you has, have given us a lot of anecdotes to to think about. And and Jonathan, you've also gave us an example earlier of being spoken for um, through the earlier right to repair bill. So as this conversation is ongoing, are you heartened by this new working group or are you sort of preparing yourself for more of the political back and forth over over civil rights as both you and Farah have been sharing with us? Oh, I know it's it's not going to be easy and, and there's going to be back and forth. Um, you know, we're we're looking to to see what progress is being made in other states at the same time, Massachusetts, um, which you know, we looked at their former bill um, as a as a template for our own, which didn't succeed. Their bill is still going through and might be passed this year. Um, so we're looking at those changes. Um, you know, but we know that we're gonna we're gonna need public pressure. You know, we're gonna need everyone's help. And you know, as as Pharaoh you know was mentioning, this really is you know an issue of looking at access to wheelchairs, access to mobility as as a human right. And um, the, you know, as Dr. Warbury was saying, there is a financial structure here uh, that is not incentivized properly. Um, there are a lot of archaic structures um, with, with Medicare um, even where devices currently are not, uh, are not authorized unless they serve to provide functional independence in the home. That language still exists to this day. It's not in the community, it's in the home. Um, so there are these archaic attitudes that we need to dismantle. Um, we need to provide protections as well as business incentives 
in the state of Connecticut to reward companies for providing timely repairs. We need to get them, um, you know, reimbursed for travel expenses. You know, currently, you know, technicians have to come out to your home. They don't, you know, that company does not get paid for the hour they spend driving. That needs to be changed. So I, we shouldn't, I don't want to paint um, any one player in this picture as the bad guy. I think it's really important to see that we're working in systems um, that are historically misaligned with uh, disability rights. Um, and we really need to collectively look at that, see what our role is in changing that and commit ourselves to doing that. And we're going to be pushing back um, hard and respectfully and um, we're going to keep the pressure on to make sure that these changes are made. So we only have a minute left, but I do want to ask you with what you just said, thinking about the systems and the fact that you brought up that you had a $2,000 um, um, invoice versus a $5 one to get your ball bearings replaced. What are your thoughts about this issue being as uniquely American as you work your way around through your um, nonprofit organization? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, you know, every day I'm in touch with people in, in Nigeria, in India, um, who are struggling to just get access to a wheelchair, who are dying of bed sores. There is so much need in this world in terms of disability rights, access to basic care. And it's ridiculous that in the wealthiest country in the world, that we are fighting a system that chooses to be so grossly inefficient in terms of how it cares for the patient population, in terms of how much financial waste goes into um, our system and goes towards funneling greed and, and profit margins as opposed to you know, patient, patient quality of life and efficacy. You know, we are not, we are not currently the global leader that we like to see ourselves that the rest of the world can emulate. Um, we need to come up with better systems. Um, and it's, I really hope that we can move forward towards that choice um, and, and realize, realize that ambition because mm -hmm. The world needs better, and we need better. Thank you so much, Jonathan Sigworth, who's the president of the nonprofit More Than Walking, and Farah Garland with the Connecticut Wheelchair Reform Coalition. Thank you both so much for your time this morning. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.